KFI AM 640, Bill Carroll. Richard Markey is one of the last. He's an L.A. comedy producer, writer, and he knew Susan Berman, the woman thought to be Robert Durst's victim here in L.A. He knew her personally and is believed to have been the last guy to have seen her alive. Dinner and a movie the day before she was found murdered. And uh, the story of Susan Berman's life is just a fascinating one. Uh, growing up as part of a mafia family in Las Vegas and the irony of her father dying of natural causes and she dies by violence, bullet wound to the back of the head. It's an incredible story. And Robert Durst is a guy, I, the more I learn about this guy, the more fascinated I am by him and the more creeped out I am. The story we told uh, a couple hours ago about him in, having an apartment building, a woman's dating him. She said, I thought it was odd that he had one one room in the house had a, an apartment too, concrete floor and a saw. Well, who doesn't have a concrete room with a saw in it? KFI's Eric Leonard just got back from New Orleans where Robert Durst was in court this week. We're waiting to get some uh, fairly minor legal issues sorted out in New Orleans before he can back and face a very major murder charge. Uh, it's a little matter of the gun and the the pot they found when they uh, served the warrant. The, uh, the, I guess it was the L.A. police or FBI. Who got the warrant well, originally? Well, this is going to be a pretty major legal fight. This exact issue about how that gun was found uh, during the, the bail hearing earlier this week where the judge decided Robert Durst would be held without bail. He's going to stay in jail in New Orleans on these potential gun charges for at least another week. The uh, the Orleans Parish District Attorney, the local prosecutor, put on the witness stand an investigator from that that office who assisted the LAPD with the search of Robert Durst's room. But it came out during the testimony that it was a little problematic. The LAPD was trying to arrest Robert Durst, and they believed he was in Houston, uh, except he wasn't in Houston. He had left. And the LAPD was using the FBI and one of its fugitive squads to help them track him down. They were tracking his cell phone. We now know they had a wiretap up on his home phone and his voicemail. And they had uh, very suddenly discovered that he had been calling the voicemail from the hotel in New Orleans and pointed the FBI to the hotel. And what happened over the next few hours will have a pretty big bearing about on, on whether or not Robert Durst can even be prosecuted for the, the gun discovery in New Orleans. The FBI agents who found him at the hotel led him up to his room under the guise of, well, we need to figure out who you really are, because Durst was not staying at the hotel under his real name. He didn't have any ID on him. And so they get up into his room because he offers to show them his passport and his birth certificate. Well, at that point... Given the nature of this case, which is a murder case involving a murder defendant, kind of unlike anybody else who's ever been on trial, rather than wait for the LAPD detectives to get there, after all, this is an LAPD murder case, or wait for a search warrant, the, a the agents who are there, and maybe some local police, begin to toss Robert Durst's hotel room. They search it top to bottom. And it was during that search that they found this handgun inside the pocket of a blue windbreaker with a white lining. It was not in plain view. And so from the perspective of Robert Durst's defense lawyer, this is an illegal search. Because even if Durst invited them into the hotel room, they could look around to see if there was anything in plain view. They could certainly search Yeah, if somebody him. invites you into the room and you walk in and there's a body on the floor, all right. But that's suspicious. We can... We could search further, but they didn't see anything suspicious. Well, they may have seen the, the marijuana. They may have seen the marijuana, may have, 
But here's the issue for Durst's defense, and this is what they're going to try and argue next week, and this is why this timeline is so critical. They're going to argue that the fact that the LAPD came to New Orleans, got the local authorities to help them get a search warrant nine hours after the room had already been searched is evidence that the LAPD knew it needed a warrant to search the room and find the things that were found. The discovery of the gun uh, is the only basis under which he's being held in New Orleans right now. And so if the defense can prove that they should have had a warrant, they should not have searched the room without a warrant, if for no other reason, knowing that this was a murder case where every tiny bit of evidence might have to be stood up in court, uh, then it shows a level of carelessness on the part of the uh, the FBI agents who were there, or recklessness, or I don't know how the defense is going to characterize it, but that is going to be the issue that's argued next week. So what was the counter-argument? What did they use as the rationale for None. them finding the gun? None, because uh, they weren't arguing the evidence. Only the defense was trying to suggest right. where it was going with this. But the investigator from the New Orleans DA's office who testified said he was not part of the search. He was not there. He characterized the initial search of the room as an inventory, that they were just trying to inventory the items so that nothing would get lost. I mean, after all, there was a lot of cash in the room. Pick up his coat. Maybe you can argue, I felt a weight in the pocket. The only problem is, one, they bothered to get a warrant later. So if they're going to say, well, we didn't need a warrant to look through the room, then why'd you get one nine hours later? Well, they could actually use that to help. They could say, because we didn't do a thorough search. We did a surface search. I thought you would say that. That's why we got the warrant later. I thought you would say that. The problem with that is that they also admitted on the witness stand that this casual inventory of the room turned up an identical list of items to the formal search warrant search later. Oh, there was nothing not, hidden. Not one thing different. And so if you were doing a cursory examination yeah, but you could of say, the room. Look, but we tore the mattress open when we got the warrant. We didn't do that before. But they didn't say that. They, they found that. What they found in the inventory is exactly what they put as, here's what we found as a result of the search warrant. Yeah. So whether or not this is legally a problem is separate from the fact that Durst's lawyer is going to make an enormous issue out of this when they get before a judge next yeah. week. and start Now, why is that, do you think? He just doesn't want to have to deal with this. Like, oh, let's get this off the table and let's get to L.A. We got a bigger fish to fry here. Let's that, not. That seems to be their intent. Yeah. It seems like they, they just want this thing to go away one way or another. Whether that meant that the local judge gave him bail, which meant that he could be released to L.A. custody and they could start working on the case, that's one way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Another way is trying to fight this completely. But it, it seems like the, the Orleans district attorney doesn't want to let this go. I mean, after all, it sounds like they've got the potential of putting Durst away for a really, really long time if they can make this stand up next week. Did uh, Durst's lawyer learn anything new about what the case in Los Angeles against him might be? Nothing about L.A., but certainly there were new details that came out as a result of this hearing about the efforts that the cops were going to to try and track Robert Durst, the timeline of that. The defense pointed out that the uh, the scramble to find him developed just as the fifth installment of the six-part HBO series was uh, was airing. They let it on that there were warrants for his phones, there were wiretaps going on, all kinds of things we didn't know before. And then we discovered that the, it wasn't just the 42000 in cash, but it was another 117000 that was on its way to him in the hotel. So all of that adds up to what we all knew to begin with, which is that Durst was on the run and uh, this was just more evidence that he was trying to hide out or get away. Yeah, i got to let you go because we're going to break here, but maybe you can give me yes. a quick answer if there's such a thing. Sure. This Vermont girl we talked about yesterday. Yes. 
who went missing after buying food from a health food store that, that Robert Durst owned. Right. And I know in the past it's been kind of dismissed that there's no connection between the two, but that's a big coincidence. It's one of a lot of strange coincidences involving Robert Durst and, and people who have vanished. Whether or not it holds water, it's it's so hard to say. It's difficult to prosecute uh, or investigate a murder case or disappearance that's that old. And uh, Durst's defense lawyer said one thing that probably you could agree with, which is that at the moment right now, Durst is kind of an easy target. So Did you get to eyeball him? Oh, yeah. I sat, sat right behind him. Is he half as creepy as he looks on TV? He looks like he is near death. He does not look well. I wondered if that's really what's going on. That's why he did the HBO thing, that he just he's tired of running. He doesn't have long for this earth. Could be. Mm. Thank you. See ya. KFI's Eric Leonard. Rich Markey, last person to see one of his suspected victims, Susan Berman, alive. We'll tell, talk about his friend. We'll get to know her a little bit better. And his meeting with Robert Durst as well, coming up. But- KFI AM 640, Bill Carroll. Rich Markey is an L.A.-based comedy producer and writer, and he knew Susan Berman. Susan Berman is uh, the suspected murder victim of Robert Durst. And he has all kinds of information about who she was as a person, her incredible, fascinating background as a, what would we call her? Uh, the uh, mafia princess, I think is the way it's been put. So we wanted to talk to him and reach out. And he was also maybe the last person ever to see her alive aside from the killer. So uh, first question for Rich, of course, is where did you first meet her? Actually, I met her in 1988. There was a Writers Guild strike that year, and we were both members of the Writers Guild, and it was mandatory that we uh, join the picket line. <clears throat> and uh, we were both on the picket line at CBS Studios, walking around amongst several hundred writers. And she overheard a conversation that I was having with a fellow that I knew and butted in with her two cents worth, and that's how we met. You like each other right away, would you say? Yeah. Uh, she was a very opinionated person, and I found her opinions both uh, smart and perceptive. And your opinions at the time probably started out being uh, about the strike, and what was going on, I would imagine. Tell you the truth, I don't remember. No? But you remember the connection. And so uh, is that where the friendship began, day in and day out on the picket lines, or did you then start to... It wasn't day in and day out. It was just that one day. But... uh... When the when the strike when the uh, picket was over with, she said to me that she couldn't remember where her car was parked, and so I drove her around looking for her car, and you know we talked while that was going on, and from that point on we started talking on the phone every so often. Right. And how would you describe the relationship? Was it uh, friendly, very close friends? Was there any hint of romance? Give me an overview of what, what it was like. No romance. Uh, we probably started out more as professional friends. We tried writing a couple of spec scripts together. And did she ever talk to you about her childhood? Yes. Uh, she gave me her book, Easy Street, about growing up in Las Vegas. Uh, and I was, as anyone who read that book, it was very interesting, and we talked a lot about it. Well, I bet. I bet. You must have been intensely curious about someone that... Uh, people were describing as a mafia princess and traveling in circles, their father with Bugsy Siegel and the like. I mean, that must have been just a, an incredible story to tell. What what kind of detail did she share with you? Well, she was a little girl 
during most of it. So she had a little girl's perspective on Las Vegas, which was a very strange point of view. Uh, she used to do her homework in the counting room where they counted all the casino receipts. Um, she, she used their adding machine to, you know, learn how to do, uh, arithmetic. The, uh, she, I remember she, she told me that she thought all little girls got taken to school in, in a chauffeur driven car with two armed bodyguards with them. And it came as kind of a surprise to her that that wasn't the way everyone lived. This is Rich Markey, who may have been the last person to see uh, Susan Berman alive. And uh, we're just trying to get to know her a little bit more. So, Rich, uh, thinking back, do you think that she had a skewed sense of right and wrong, of morality, good and bad, people to be around and not be around because of her, her growing up in Vegas? Or would you say she was just like the rest of us? Well, she wasn't like the rest of us, but... I thought she was a very ethical person. She did not try and hide who her father was. She, she didn't try and cover up or make excuses for him. She dealt with it very forthrightly, and, and um, she was on the level. When, when she told you what she thought about something or she explained something to you, you always got the feeling that she was giving you the unvarnished truth. Hmm. Some people have described her as uh, a good friend who liked to have a lot of friends but could also be vindictive. If you got on her bad side, you were just done. You know, I didn't see that part of her because I didn't have that kind of relationship with her. Uh, did you know Robert Durst? I met him once. And you met him through her, I assume? No, actually I met her after her murder. Oh. One of her close friends, Kim Lankford, called me and... Uh, said that Bobby had reached out to her that he couldn't come to the memorial service for Susan, but that he really would kind of like to make contact with some of her close friends and family and you know, just sort of get together and talk about her a little bit. And so I met him. We had lunch together, he, Kim Lankford, and I, and... Uh, that was about a month before he went to Texas and, and, and killed that fellow in Galveston. What impression did you have of him? Well, surprisingly, I did not sense at all that he was a serial killer. Uh, he was a little eccentric, but I wouldn't say any more so than a lot of other people I've known in show business. Um, and uh, he, he was the, – the thing I remember most about the conversation, and this is – 14 years ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago, was that uh, he, he was really upset about the district attorney of Westchester County, Jeanine Perot, uh, reopening the investigation into his wife's disappearance and really thought it was vindictive and politically motivated, and that's what he talked about for the most part. So he wasn't talking about missing Susan, which the rest of you would have been. I, I think there was some conversation about it, but I, I don't think he dwelled on that. Rich, we'll pause there. We'll come back. I want to hear a little bit more about those uh, final days and your last conversations with your friend Susan. So if you can hang on, I appreciate that. Sure. First, though, it's Robert with an update, not Durst. The other guy. The other guy. You must have very mixed feelings. Is there a perverse sort of pride that your father was, was as, as big a guy as he was and, a, and an incredible shame that he was 
pretty bad man. I feel a tremendous sadness that his life was so painful and that the life of organized crime led in many ways to his early death, to my mother's suicide, and to the fact that I had to grow up without them. So if anything, I feel so sad that they had that type of life because of what he thought was really a free lunch, which of course always turns out not to be. Susan Berman, back in the day when she was promoting a book about her strange life as a mafia princess. Now police believe that she is the murder victim of Robert Durst, who's going to be coming back to L.A. at some point in time to face those charges. Rich Markey is a writer and uh, L.A.-based comedy producer and maybe the last person to have seen seen uh, Susan Berman alive. And we've been talking to him about her life and asked what it's like to hear an old friend who's been long gone to hear her on radio like that. It must be strange. It is. Uh, it's a little bit startling. Yeah, I bet. It's uh, it's an odd thing that someone feels so alive in, in media, you know. And they're, exactly. And they're long gone. Uh, what, what image did it bring back in your mind? What did you remember about Susan just as you're hearing her voice? To tell you the truth, the thing that came to mind was she had three dogs, terriers, and they would fight with each other. And uh, just hearing her voice for some reason evoked that image of uh, – of her trying to pull her three dogs apart and send them into different rooms in the house and talk to them like they were children and giving them a timeout. That's a nice memory. Tell me about the last time you saw Susan. Where were you? What were you doing? Uh, she picked me up in her old SUV and we drove down to the third street promenade and had dinner. Uh, she told me that Bob Durst was uh, had, had just given her a, a loan of a fairly substantial amount of money. She'd been going through some tough financial times. So we talked about that and uh, the different projects that we were each working on. And uh, there was a movie theater right next to the restaurant that was playing uh, a comedy uh, called Best in Show, which is about dog shows. And as I just said, she she was a real dog person, so she wanted to see the movie. So we watched the movie. Afterwards, she dropped me back off home. Uh, the next morning, I left for a family reunion in Las Vegas, of all places. And that was the last I saw of her. Did, what was your understanding of her relationship with Robert Durst at that time? Some sort of described her as a friend, a confidant, uh uh, a media spokesperson as well. How did you understand her relationship with him? I, I think that she did that for him when when his wife disappeared and he asked her to help. But uh, I don't think she did that on any regular basis. Uh, they were very good friends. She thought of him as one of her closest friends. Um, uh, I know that she was very grateful to him for loaning her money when she needed it and uh, uh other than that i don't think she had any fear of him or any in any way felt threatened well that's where it gets interesting and you think about her upbringing and the people she would have been around as a child you know some of las vegas most infamous mobsters uh despite the fact that there was a lot of suspicion around her friend she was comfortable with him do you think maybe that was just naive or did no, I, I, I think you understand it correctly. I, uh, the court, it, it's, it's only supposition on, on all of our parts, but I think 
one of the lessons she took away from growing up in a in a mob family is that uh, there there are people. Uh, she she thought very highly of her father, not because he was a mobster, but because he did many fine things in his life. He he raised money to open up the first synagogue in Las Vegas uh, when World War II broke out. He tried to join the army; they wouldn't take him because he was a felon. So he went to Canada and joined the Canadian army. And in 1948, when Israel was fighting for its uh, independence. Um, to establish itself as a state, uh, he raised a great deal of money for Israel. And he's, she would talk about things like that and, you know, thought that he, he was a fine man without ignoring the fact that he'd been a mobster as well, though. So she saw that people could have a duality. That's what I think, and I think that's what she probably saw in Bob Durst as well. But to your knowledge, she never suspected him of being a murderer. Not to my knowledge. She never talked to me about that. Some of her other friends, <coughs> excuse me, talked to me about that after she had been murdered, and and said that uh, you know she she had a lot of opinions about that, but she never spoke them to me. Some of her friends had said that in those final days she seemed different, distracted somehow, upset about something. Did you get any of that feeling in your last meeting with her? The, the only thing that I knew that she was upset about were the financial problems that she was having, but. In some ways, that was compensated for because she had made a deal with uh, CBS Television to write, um, um, I think it was a miniseries or it might have been a regular series about life in the, in the Las Vegas casinos in the 50s and the 60s. And so she was working on that and was optimistic that that was going to be a good project for her. Talking to Rich Markey, an L.A. comedy producer. Thought to be one of the last people to see Susan Berman alive. So you had dinner, you went to see the movie, and uh, you said goodbye. Did you talk to her again after that on the phone, or was that your your last conversation? I think that was the night before she was murdered. So, uh, as I said, the next morning I left town, and uh, the police don't think that anyone else saw her except for the murderer after she dropped me off. And... When did you hear that she'd been found dead, that her body had turned up? When I came back from our family reunion uh, four or five days later, there was a message on my machine from her manager, Niall Brenner, saying that she had been killed and uh, kind of just giving me the, uh, you know, the very basic information of when and, and, and where. Did anyone pop it to mind immediately as a possible killer? Not really. I, I knew that there were some people who she was um, had disputes with, and one of them was her landlady, because she wasn't. I think she was a couple of months behind in her rent, and her landlady was not happy with her, of course. And I, I think that uh, was very rancorous, and so I, I, that was a possibility. Uh, the police quickly came to my door. And in talking to them, it was clear that there were a couple of other people that they uh, were looking into. But, of course, it didn't take very long uh, before they figured out that Bob Durst had something to do with it. So what's your feeling about it now, after all these years and knowing what you know, knowing her, having met him? Well, it's a relief because from the time that he killed the man in Texas, 
there wasn't any doubt in my mind that he, he had done the other murders as well. Uh, he had murder in his heart, and he got away with it until now. So there's a certain amount of relief that justice is finally going to be done. Do you have a clear memory of the last time you looked at her after that movie and said goodbye? Does that flashback in your mind, or was that erased? No, it's there. Um, at the memorial service for her, 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 her foster son, Sarah Kaufman, arranged a memorial service that was held at the Writers Guild Theater. And all of her close friends and some of her close family members got up and and talked about her. And those are the last memories I really have of her. But you don't have the memory of actually looking at her and saying goodbye that day, not knowing it would be the last time you'd see her? Uh, just in sort of a general way. I, uh, I I think we made plans to talk on the phone when I got back. That was the last thing I remember. Sadly, that's how it usually works, isn't it? We don't get to know that it's going to be the last time we see someone. Yeah. Thank you, Rich, for sharing the story with us. We appreciate it. Good to be with you. Rich Markey, L.A. writer and uh, comedy producer who knew Susan Berman personally. Might have been the last person to see her alive. Incredible story, isn't it? Coming up next, a Southern California lawyer who may want to murder our executive producer, Brian Holt. And a lot of people he knows. That's next. But first, he doesn't. you'll be okay, Rob. Okay. You'll be fine, yeah. Don't, All right. don't look so worried. Okay. You're not that kind of friend. No. Somebody get Brian out of the room. I told you, don't let Brian in the room for this. It's going to be very upsetting for him. KFI AM 640, Bill Carroll. You a believer in direct democracy? California is one of the leaders in the area of direct democracy, which is the uh, voter initiative process. Mm. Now, why just elect politicians to sit around and make decisions for you? Sometimes we should... You know, follow the advice of 60-second commercials and go vote on issues we know nothing about. We have mm. taken no time to research and just vote for them. You know, mm. like the, the latest, what was it called? Release all the prisoners out onto the streets initiative, like the one we just approved. Yeah, that's great. I love direct democracy. It's wonderful. We've had the landmark laws reducing property taxes. That one's famous around the world, right? Banning affirmative action, legalizing medical marijuana. It's unbelievable. Here's the latest one. There's an initiative to declare that the people of California wisely command that we kill all the gays and lesbians. Well, finally. (laughs) Says the gay guy. It's called the Sodomite Suppression Act. Oh, nice title. Wow, I like the alliteration there. Call sodomy a monstrous evil that should be punishable by bullets to the head or any other convenient method. Mm. You have a shovel, baseball bat, Uh, whatever you have. Uh In a state where we can't even kill murderers, we'll just put a bullet in the head. By definition of that that word, wouldn't uh, probably a lot more people than me. Some straight people, too. Straight people. I mean, I'm not a particular fan of certain things, including that. So, yeah. uh, yeah. You're talking Um, about the technical definition of sodomy. Straight people might not be sodomized. Not not every gay person is. Trust me. Might be. Yeah, I know some people in this room yeah. are, <laughs> including <this> room. me. <laughs> well, I have certain, I've seen certain kinds of porn, I guess, that might have included that act. And well, there's only one man in the room. So I, I, I think I get where you're going. It, this comes from a, this proposal from a Huntington Beach-based attorney, 
Uncle Matt. Mm. Uncle Matt McLaughlin. McLaughlin is my mother's maiden name. Same spelling. M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N. McLaughlin. Uh, It's more of an Irish name. McLaughlin. Yeah. Matt McLaughlin. We've reached out to him. We have, as as I'm sure everyone in the world has, too. Oh, yeah. He is not returning calls for comment. His voice... Mail his voice mailbox is full. I wonder why. You know, I think you you could probably get to him easier because a guy like this, he's going to be in a gay bar. This is something latent going on here. This is a guy who's protesting a little too much. Come no. on. No, I actually think it's just the opposite. Here's the rub. That's what it says here. I'm reading from the article. The rub. Here's the rub. That's what it says. Now maybe you're thinking there's no way such a blatantly illegal measure would ever be approved by California voters. But here's the rub. You think they did that on purpose? Uh, We might get a chance to find out. Because it appears that there's no legal way for state officials to stop it. You can go out there and collect signatures. And if he gets enough, on the ballot it goes. This is the same guy that also wanted the King James Bible taught in schools. From what I understand. Well, I mean, that one seems a little more reasonable than this one. Than shoot the gays? Than shoot the gays. Uh, No. So, would you? I mean, I guess you could be a self-confessed gay, like it's a crime. You know, I'm gay. Boom, you're dead. Otherwise, wouldn't we have to catch you in the act? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're just walking around, you're not having... You could be a gay virgin. You haven't actually had gay sex. Are you gay yet? Do you have to have gay sex to be... No, that's your orientation, so it doesn't matter what act you may or may not have performed. Let's take Todd, gay. for example. He's straight, right. and yet there's no actual sex going there's on. There's not enough up. evidence to uh, convict so, him of being straight. No, so you could just as easily shoot him for being gay as straight, because we just don't know. Right. Now, Brian, you like this uh, theory that he's just trying to show how stupid the system is? Uh, that's he one theory, and it's us. my theory, that he's, he, you know, it's so obviously ridiculous that it would never pass. Why would I mean, anyone this guy want to do a that liberal to their college. reputation, though? Why would well, yeah, because wanna... they're af- actually trying to disbar him. Yeah, but why would anyone want it known out there that they want to kill gay yeah, people? Because no, I... He's, I, I'm waiting for him to come out and say, uh, you know what, obviously I never meant this to be taken literally. I was just trying to prove how stupid the system is. Yeah. I don't, well, know. I, I don't think so. That call his Uncle system. Matt, Uncle Matt McLaughlin. We'll find out for sure. Thompson Espinosa coming up next. Big show, Bill. Big show. It's always a big show. It is. It's amazing. I don't know how we do it. You know the yelling Donald, does not make the topics better. I. Uh, it's. This is the way I speak, and it's terribly obnoxious, and I, I fully expect I to be uh, shown the exit soon. Donald Sterling's wife facing off in court with V. Stiviano. Mm. Oh, it's delicious. I well, know. last time they faced off, it took, it took a while for him to get going. But he finally got there. Took about an hour. Uh, also, uh, John Ham news, of course. Tech talk with Father Robert Balliser. Lots going on. Drone news too. I know there's drone news here at KFI. There's you drone just news picked that piece of paper. Our up, news you? department got a drone. Yeah, I want a drone. All I the have reporters no have actual need for it, but I want a drone. You no way. I understand every reporter has a drone. No, they didn't get drones for each one of them. Really? That's, what, a, that's no, what it sounded like to me when I read the, the press release. They got the most amazing drone ever. The RKFI drone is serious. It's a serious drone. It's a really cool drone. Is it armed? Not yet. Oh. <laughs> the but Thompson keep Espinosa up, keep drone up that attitude, though. is armed. <laughs> that's right. You think it would pull around a banner that says, uh, listen to the Bill Carroll show? No. There's only one way to find out. The only problem is it can't get too far away from you. Then it just circles back. But 
Okay, thank you. A lot of show, Bill. Oh, a lot of show go. coming up next. So much. Up. Yeah, he's a very Bill, busy guy. Thompson Espinosa next. Bill Carroll, KFI AM 640.